Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. A new report by Environment Victoria suggests the creation of a minimum efficiency standard for rental properties could lower the cost of power bills for renters, improve health outcomes for renters, uh, lower carbon emissions and create up to 4,000 jobs. Currently, houses rented in Victoria do not have minimum standards around things like heating and cooling, uh, effective lighting or any other areas that could bring down energy costs. I know we've been hearing a lot about energy costs and how they're impacting on households at the moment. Pick up any newspaper, you'll see it there. Um, so Environment Victoria, uh, led by lead author Anne Martinelli, who's just about to join us on the phone, uh, conducted this research to talk to renters about what kinds of uh, uh, conditions they were experiencing in their rental properties uh, and how that could possibly be improved by minimum standards. Uh, so I think we have Anne on the line right now. Yes, hi, good morning. Oh, good morning, Anne. Um, Anne, could you begin by telling us a bit about the type of efficiency levels you heard about when you were talking to renters? Uh, you mean the sorts of um, stories that renters told us about the the issues that they're facing now? Yes. Or the standards that we're, we're proposing? I suppose the standards that uh, people you spoke to are living in now and then the standards you're proposing, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I think the main thing to, um, uh, that came across was that while um, most rental homes are in good, good condition, you know, I mean, um, there's a, a relatively small proportion proportion of rental homes that are really um, in very poor condition, and that's, you know, a, the, where a lot of the focus for minimum standards um, has been placed so far. Um, the um, what we're finding with the situation with efficiency is that even relatively um, good homes are not very efficient, and so the problem is that a lot of the things that you would need to do to improve those homes are pretty invisible and they're not necessarily very, you know, front of mind or high priority for a lot of landlords. Even, you know, most landlords, um, I think, you know, are endeavouring to do the right thing by their tenants but don't necessarily um, immediately think of things like insulation, draft sealing, uh, those sorts of relatively, I guess, boring sorts of measures that um, in fact actually make the most difference. So um, by uh, including those sorts of things in a set of minimum standards, we think it will just uh, prompt a bit, of a, a bit of attention to those things that otherwise might get missed. And do you think that these things you're talking about, like uh, good insulation, um, et cetera, are, they are things that owner-occupiers do think about when thinking about their houses, but not so much landlords historically? 
Well, that's really the issue that we we are wanting to address with minimum standards. Um, uh, as you mentioned, you know, we're, a lot of households are really noticing rising power prices and one of the obvious things you can do to cut your bills is to reduce consumption by improving efficiency. And so a lot of um, uh, homeowners, owner-occupiers are moving to put in place those sorts of basic measures, but um, we're not seeing that same uh, movement happening within rental properties because of this, uh, this uh, I guess, um, uh, problem that's been around for a long time called the split, split incentive, whereby there's not much, there's not really a direct incentive for a landlord to invest in efficiency measures because it's the tenants who basically get the benefits in terms of lower bills and improved health outcomes. So um, at the moment, as your listeners might be aware, the Victorian government is reviewing our tenancies laws at the moment, reviewing the Residential Tenancies Act. And this problem's been around for a long time. We think um, this review is an opportunity to finally bite the bullet and do something about it. And really the the only way to effectively address a market failure problem like this is to um, put in place some sensible regulation like minimum standards. Uh, the government has been putting has been at least um, putting on the table the option of putting in place some very basic health and safety standards which um, I you know we, we get the impression they're in, in imagining would target that uh, very very poor performing bottom end of the market that I mentioned earlier but we think there's a real opportunity here to do something really practical. Uh, and effective for a much larger group of te- tenants by including efficiency in that uh, set of health and safety standards. So when you talk about minimum standards, what do you mean? Will every home that's rented out need a five-star or six-star energy rating like what we have for new homes? Or No, not, it's certainly not initially, and partly that's because um, there's very poor data about um, exactly what, um, what might be needed, and each home is, is slightly... Different. So, what we're proposing at the moment is that, and uh, and where the government is, I think, um, probably thinking in terms of uh, that basic set of minimum health and safety standards, is that it would be quite a simple um, checkbox sort of list. So, um, it, it, initially, it might be things like, uh, you know, does the house have insulation? We know that um, 25% of rental properties. Um, have no insulation at all. That's an estimate. As I said, the data's not very good. Um, another 50% could probably do with an improvement. So even in, even if in the first instance um, there was a requirement for there to be insulation, that would start to make a massive difference. Um, what we're saying in the report is that the best way to introduce something like this in a way that's not going to um, lead to shocks in the market, that's going to lead to unintended consequences like rent increases or evictions, is to introduce um, these things gradually over a period of time. We're saying over a period of five years, um, but initially, no, we want to start with um, some pretty basic um, features-based sort of set of standards. Um, So what's the connection between these types of reforms and job creation? You mentioned in the report that up to 4,000 jobs could be created over the five-year introduction Mm -hmm. period and then a further ongoing 1,600 jobs. Yeah. How do you figure that? 
Um, so the 4,000 jobs, again, it, it's an estimate. You know, jobs figures are always a bit um, hard to, to totally nail. But um, the point we're making here is that uh, the sorts of um, measures that make a difference to household efficiency are generally trades and, uh, delivered by local businesses across a range of trades and services businesses. So um, whether that's... Um, uh, you know, as I said, insulation, installation, um, the, the um, sorts of things that you might do for draft sealing, um, replacing your lights, uh, all of these sorts of things are delivered by uh, local businesses that um, are currently um, supporting something like 2,000 jobs in Victoria, but there's real scope for improving that given that we know that, um, you know, up to a quarter of our homes are being um, pretty much left untouched at the moment, which is the rental um, rental sector. So these are um, so so there's those jobs involved in the actual upgrade of of the rental housing stock. Um, but in terms of ongoing jobs, um, they're jobs that are generated by the money that households would otherwise be spending on. Um, power bills, um, having that money available for spending elsewhere in the economy. And that's that's where we estimate those 1,600 jobs on an ongoing basis are coming from. I do just wonder, Anne, is there a possibility that, it, I mean, it is the landlords that are going to be eating the initial cost of these minimum standards. How do yep. you avoid the landlords simply increasing rents for tenants to cover the cost of these minimum standards? A little like the discussion around uh, the bank tax being passed straight on to consumers. Um, yeah, well, look, it, it is a real concern and one that we're very aware of. Um, firstly, um, we're, we're really focusing on keeping the costs affordable. Um, if um, the package of measures that we're, we've outlined in the report um, would be at most $5,000 for uh, a house that had none of them, and we expect mm-hmm. that most houses will have, um, hopefully, some of these measures already, mm-hmm. um, and spreading that over five years, that's... Um, that's less than five percent of rental income of you know median rental income in in Melbourne at the moment is twenty thousand dollars a year. That's a fair chunk of money. Um, so in the first um, first case, we would say you know let's keep those costs affordable, which we've um, uh, endeavoured to do in the package of measures that we've selected there. Um, but secondly. Um, because we are in the process of reviewing the legislation, there's an opportunity to actually strengthen some of the measures in the, the legislation around um, uh, rent increases um, because we have had situations in the past where, um, you know, policy measures have come in um, that have really translated to a couple of dollars a week, mm-hmm. but landlords have said, oh, well, therefore I'm putting the rent up by $50 a week, and that's mm-hmm. totally disproportionate to that actual cost. So what we need are some measures in there that would um, prevent uh, excessive rent pass-throughs, but also give tenants the power to to challenge it where um, where it does occur. Which currently that, that that power is not there in the legislation. Well, hopefully you find a receptive uh, ear in the state government for some of those changes. And um, thank you, Hips, for joining us this morning, Anne. Thanks very much. 3CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead-up to the National Postal Survey on same-sex marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families. 
Our community may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas. At this particular time in our political climate, we need to ensure that our members, friends and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community. Pecha Kucha 2020 is an opportunity for researchers and creative thinkers to present their latest work to the audience. To be followed by vigorous debate and conversation, the premise of the format is that each speaker is limited to 20 photo slides and 20 seconds on each slide um, with the result of telling stories without the unnecessary baggage of jargon or digressions or anything. And we've got Dr. David Nichols, uh, who is Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne in the studio. Uh, He's written on the development and cultures of the Australian inner city and is interested in social and cultural planning, as well as issues of heritage and social history. Uh, Welcome to the studio. Oh, thank you very much, William. Great to be here. Fantastic. Um, So let's get straight into it. Can you tell us a bit about the theme of the event that you're taking place on Wednesday, the Pecha Kucha Volume 30? Yeah, the theme is, it's very, I won't say it's very broad, but it, it has a lot, there's a lot of potential for interpretation. Protest against forgetting. Is the is the idea that's uh, that people are going to be exploring, and I've got to say, uh, just from the outset, I have no idea what the others are going to be doing. I have no idea. No, I know what I'm going to be we've doing. We've got a but, good know, mix, a good mix of speakers coming on, and we'll I talk know, a bit about yeah, them in a yeah, moment, or at yeah. least I'll, I'll I'll go through some yeah. some other speakers. But um, for for your for your part though, you'll be talking about um, a forgotten aspect of Melbourne's past. Can you tell us the story of Miliara? First of all, where is it? Yeah. Oh, it's out. Um, uh, kind of uh, Avondale Heights, Keilor kind of uh, area. It's, it's part of the city of Mooney Valley now. It's on the uh, east side of the Maribyrnong uh, River. So it's uh, you know it's not it's not a million miles away. It's uh, and it kind of comes down to interpretation. What which part of that area you want to call Miliara? Um, you know there is a Miliara shopping centre, and so the name is retained. There's a Miliara Road as well. Uh, the whole area was initially sold. Um, as the Miliara estate in the uh, late 1920s. And it was known uh, by a lot of residents through for a lot of the 20th century as uh, either Miliara generally or Miliara Gardens was also a name that was used. So uh, it's um, it's one of those, I mean, I'm going to talk about forgetting. I mean, in some ways, I think there are, there are people in that area who don't necessarily even realise that they're in Miliara, so to speak, but that's uh, that was the that was the name that was given in the in the mid twenties. That's right, and they're on they're, the people who live there now in that area that you mentioned earlier um, live on a site that has history um, that is that's completely forgotten. We'll get to the idea of suburbia in a moment, mm. but what is the specific story of Miliara? What happened there? Oh, specific! Um, it's a long <laughs> story. Like you know, it, sometimes yeah. it, when you go in deep on something, mm. uh, it's really hard to summarise it. Um, which is going to say that the Petrakucha thing is going to be uh, a great challenge for me. Yeah, uh, I'm used to digressing and like just rambling all over the place. Um, I, I think it's one of my strong points. Anyway, <laughs> um, we'll see if I could be concise. The history of the Miliara estate uh, essentially is that uh, Walter Burley Griffin and Mary Marnie Griffin, who were the two uh, designers, of course, of Canberra, our nation's capital, in the uh, uh, well, just over a hundred years ago now. 
were commissioned by a local uh, real estate developer, Henry Scott, to create what he called at the time uh, a garden city. So he, he had the idea that there would be, I mean, he didn't come up with that term, but he thought he was promoting it as a garden city. And his idea was there were going to be factories. It was going to be, in, in a way, sort of um, self-contained. Uh, obviously, um, there was no doubt that it was relatively close to Melbourne and you you know it was really a, a dirty big suburb, but um, it was would be self-contained in the sense that there was going to be a lot of employment opportunities, there'd be a lot of factories, particularly up in the northern end, uh, and there'd be a huge amount of residential sites. And what he was mainly talking about was uh, at, I think about 25% of the site was going to be uh, open space. So it was going to be a lot of uh, recreational open space and uh, therefore... Uh, it was being sold as uh, quite a remarkable, I and mean, that that is quite a high proportion, more than double what you'd normally get in a in a suburb, um, even quite a, you know, schmink suburb. Um, so that was a, that was a big deal, and it was a big selling point. And I think that's that's one of the things that that I'm going to be talking about is how people fought to retain that open space element, uh, you know, for their children or for their community and so on, uh, because. The Griffins designed it. Um, they didn't stick around too much longer. Um, um, they uh, The place was named Miliara, by the way. It's an Aboriginal word. It's from northern New South Wales. Uh, and oddly enough, that there was a place called, called Miliara in northern New South Wales, and the name uh, ostensibly means uh, to see at a distance. Not quite sure what, what relevance that had to Miliara, but, um, but the... Um, the original Miliara is more or less gone. I mean, the, there's nothing there now as far as I can tell. So there's only one Miliara now and it's, uh, you know, thousands of miles from uh, the original. Uh, the there's a, there's a long period of time before people really start to live there. It's designed, there's, it's quite a big sales success. So people own the blocks, but they don't build because there's, for instance, no sewerage and uh, no electricity and so on. And, and it takes a long time before that's brought into the, to the area. So by the time people are ready to build, council uh, is very reluctant to provide those kinds of services. And in fact, um, the Board of Works, which is the the Metropolitan Planning Authority, says, no, we we can't do this. We're going to redesign the whole place. We're going to to forcibly acquire uh, the the blocks that people already own and we're going to uh, uh, re-subdivide and uh, and rebuild uh, because, you know, it's... this uh, this amount of open space is impractical and people actually stand up. What's really interesting for me in particular is people stand up and say, we want to honour the original intention of the designers of the suburb. We want to, we're, we're interested in the Griffin plan and we, um, we're interested in Griffin and they obviously think that's kind of a, they, you know, they're proud of that, you know, I guess the connection to uh, Canberra and, you know, there's a, there's a rising, there's a little bit of rising nationalism in the, in Australia in the 60s, it doesn't really come to, it doesn't really peak until the 80s, but that's a, I think there's a kind of a slow burn going on in the way people regard their, uh, you know, partly their urban history, but also just generally the the history of the nation. But um, uh, ultimately, um, the people in the area of Miliara, and I don't think there are a huge amount of them, it's quite hard, you know, this is part of the, the forgetting story, I think, is that even at the time, it's hard to get a grasp on how many people there are there and what they're, you know, whether there are actually people living on the site. I think in some cases there are. People are saying, you know, screw you, I'm going to build here anyway. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to build my house. People are saying, you know, that that uh, great 50s, 60s story of like, I'm waiting to get married and I can't, you know, do that till I've got a house. And, you know, at the moment I'm, you know, living in the, you know, the back room of my parents' house or whatever, that kind of stuff that... Um, 
so people see it as a real impediment to their you know their lives their lives are being held up while the big wigs are arguing about whether they'll be allowed to own this land and build on it uh, so the um, ultimately the the Miliaro residence owners whatever are uh, they win out and they're allowed to um, to keep their you know <laughs> I guess the you know the council ends up just going okay keep your plan we'll we'll make it work you know and it and it does actually work that the so there's there's protest there and there's also I mean the other thing that really intrigues me about this whole thing is that nobody remembers this as a story that's not a Miliara story nobody in that region recalls that there was this um, all this lobbying and all this um, you know unhappiness uh, in the mid sixties about this as a uh, um, uh, what do you call it? As a kind of a, a process against uh, the re the replanning, the redesign of their area. And you talk to, for instance, I mean, charming guy who uh, now runs the I think it's the Avondale Heights, um, you know, uh, local residents association. And it's like, well, we've got nothing to do with the the people who organised back then. We don't, you know, there's no continuum. There's no continuation of, and there's no there's no sense of history. Memory. Well, that, that's true. There's yeah. no sense of history. Mm. Um, a very minimal sense of history. Mm. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to, sure. you know, denigrate the people who live there now. No. I think that they're not necessarily. I think part of it is that they're, they got what they wanted. Mm. You know, they don't need to use history to do anything. They don't need to. Uh, it, it has no um, practical. Rel- I mean, I think it should. Personally, as a historian, of course, I think it should. Mm-hmm. I think you know you should be aware of your history every minute of the yeah. day. But, um, but that's me. Uh, you know, in the day to day, they they live uh, in a in a comfortable suburb, and it's. Um, it's a kind of there's a bit of naming uh, there's a bit of Griffin style naming and so on in that in that area and I suppose even the fact that the Miliara name has lived on it has some meaning um, but I think that they do enjoy the fruits of that uh, that struggle every every day because they have uh, a huge amount of um, of Green amazing open space, open space and they have you know great recreation I mean just the just the the river Maribyrnong there on the um, Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. That, that part is beautiful, and yeah. then, you know, so they have all of that kind of stuff, which is uh, a great advantage to them all and the time. There is an upcoming discussion about the way to use some of that old military land along oh, yeah. the river there as well. So, if those um, Avondale Heights residents now did have a bit of a knowledge of uh, mm. the methodology that people in the past used to get uh, their wishes met by the mm. local council, that could be really useful for if sure. They refresh themselves. Yeah, true. So. Mm, true. Fantastic. Okay, so if you want to hear more about the uh, the story of Miliara, that's uh, that's going to be part of the Pechacocha event, as I mentioned earlier, which is uh, happening this Wednesday, the fourth of October, from six thirty p.m. to eight thirty p.m. Now, David, you mentioned earlier you didn't actually really know much about the the other speakers who are coming on, but um, there are a whole heap of very interesting speakers who'll be no, joining yeah, you, yeah. um, challenging the act of forgetting. Mm. Uh, and they uh, will be joined by people like the La Trobe Uni Future Fellow, Liz Connor, who will, um, has written on reframing Aboriginal history, cool. and Yorta Yorta Man Jason, who produced Black Cabaret, and also writer and human rights campaigner Arnold Zabel. Oh, yeah. Zabel. So yeah. it's a lot of people talking about, um, um, well, I guess historians and people who are very um, connected to the idea of history, um, which is something that you've mentioned being wielded. and. Mm. Um, I just wanted to get very just quickly to to finish out our interview. Mm. Um, the idea of the suburb as a place that is, um, I don't know, neutral, I suppose, where where people don't need to wield history. Mm. Um, how how do we how do we explain that? How do we understand 
suburbia as a, a historical place? Uh, have we got a couple of hours? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, look, I think that um, it's it's partly, it's a frame of mind, I think. Mm. It's like you've got to, you know, people have a, uh, once again, putting my historian's hat on, it's a, there's, there. There is, I think, a resistance to understand history as part of your everyday life and, you know, even your own history in a sense, you know, even your own personal history. But um, I think that people look at the places that they live and they, they just, they're so used to them. They don't think of change because, in a way, you don't notice change if it's if it's happening so slowly around you. Um, and it's only, um, you know, perhaps if you live somewhere for 20 or 30 years, which people tend not to do so much these days, um, you get that sense. But even then, you know, you're not necessarily... Uh, inclined to uh, to analyse that, uh, you know, unless you're a you know, particularly philosophical person. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's that aspect of it. There's also an aspect of just uh, people need, sorry to, sorry, to, sorry to start talking so early in the morning about what people need, but I think people need to, to, uh, to understand their own place in the context of the wider society and, and you know, to get some kind of framework uh, to... To get a sense of where their pla- where their place is, it's one of those things about. I mean, this is not just about Australians. I think it's. I think it's probably most people everywhere. But you know, for instance, you know, we're going to talk about Miliara. I mean, it's not. It's probably lower middle class suburb. Mm. Uh, Australians are very resistant, I think, to thinking of themselves in class terms. Everyone uh, Australians generally think of themselves as being um, not as not as well off as you know. Uh, almost everybody is resistant to the to the idea of thinking of themselves as affluent in Australia. Uh, so when you start talking in class terms uh, in a suburban context, I think people just kind of shut down a little bit because they, they, kind of, they kind of, you know, it's almost, I think for some people it's almost rude. You they know? reject what feel, it feels like an accusation. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah. and like, and most Australians don't, don't like being told that they're well off because we mm. all feel like we could have a little bit more, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm, uh, and that does, that does tie into... Mm. Um, why, and perhaps it's a fault of historians t- that um, historians such as myself always want to like put things in that kind of ca- those kinds of categories, mm. um, and and to try to compare thing compare places with other places, and you know in a way reduce th- what's special about a place. And I do think that there's um, there's some very special elements about Miliara that make it very you know environmentally and um, uh, historically unique. Uh, but I would also, you know, very quickly I'd fall into the trap of, for instance, as I just did, typifying as uh, lower middle class. Uh, and and therefore, there's a whole lot of baggage that comes with that as well, which, uh, oh, wow, see what see what you've done? <laughs> see, this is, this is why I can't do Petra Kucha, because no, you know, I'm just well, going to going off on Aside a from, the, uh, from the actual talk that you are also giving, there will also be a discussion as well afterwards. Oh, I hope so. Um, and um, so just <laughs> to remind everyone... Yeah, please, <laughs> for each speaker, great. <laughs> um, so that's this Wednesday, the 4th of October, 2017, at, from 6.30pm. Um, that's at, happening at Bagunga Nganjin in North Fitzroy Library, 182 St George's Road. We'll put more information up on the website. Uh, it is free, very important, but you do have to register, so yeah. get those tickets. Um, Food and drinks th- will be available as well. Yeah, and um, have you guys been to this, this the new library? There? I've not been yet. No, yeah, no, I haven't no. been either, but yeah. uh, my mother went. She said it was amazing. And Wonderful. It sounds like a great place to visit. Absolutely. So it's a good it's a good time to get acquainted with that uh, that particular facility. I would do say. you need any more reason to turn up this Wednesday night? No, I do not think so. Dr. David Nichols, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, Doctor.
Hello, I'm Duncan Graham. In recent weeks, we've looked at Centrelink's RoboDebt Monster through the lens of community lobby groups and welfare recipients. Today, Peter Davis and I speak to Kate Zicious, National Branch Coordinator of the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, to get her perspective. We asked her how the OCI system, now nicknamed RoboDebt, differed from the previous data matching regime. There used to be a team of people that would work on reclaiming debts and there was a human hand in there. There was human beings that were checking and double-checking and working with people to work out whether they owed money and how much they owed. But then they basically automated that system. So instead of having the people overseeing it and doing more accurate work but sending out less letters because the more accurate work takes a lot longer, they replaced it with an automated system where nobody's checking. The software Centrelink uses is really outdated. It's glitchy and problematic. The government's tried to sell this to the broader public as this is a simple system and it's all supposed to fit in perfectly together. But it just totally doesn't do that at all. It's like trying to fit a big square block into a round hole, really. It's such a complex system and it's not working. They should totally repeal those debts. They should shut it all down and not go ahead with it until they've sorted it out. Initially, the OCI targeted current and former recipients of Newstart, but Kate revealed that other clients of the department are getting caught up in the fiasco. They've started targeting pensioners for debts and I've had a couple of calls from pensioners who were on disability support pensions who are extremely stressed. They've got no money. They're starting to get debts which are not real debts. They don't know how to deal with it. If you've moved on from your welfare payments and you're working full-time, it's really very difficult to handle this situation in terms of time. If you're on welfare and you've got no money, it's really difficult to handle this situation in terms of resources and stress. So it's just awful. It's a really bad system that they really need to just shut down. It has been pointed out that the OCI system was bought in in 2016 as both a revenue-raising and a cost-saving exercise by the Department of Human Services. Nadine Flood of the Commonwealth Public Sector Union summed it up when she appeared before the recent Senate committee into robo-debt, when she said, The decision to replace the human oversight of debt recovery with automated data matching was absolutely based on a desire and an imperative to save money. It has, of course, proven to be a classic false economy and has created costly reverse workflows where staff are taken offline to deal with complex and difficult disputes over incorrectly raised automated debts. In the end, it's people that have to do the work to sort that out. And that becomes really expensive, not just on the government side, but on the individual who's on welfare or has been on welfare in the past. I mean, everybody's got to spend so much time on sorting this stuff out. It's really, really complex. So we've had people ringing up who've got debts of $16,000 and they've gone to get a review. The debt's then gone down to $10,000 and then it's been reviewed again and it's only $50, you know. So the distance between the original debt and the actual debt is vast. And in many cases, there's no debt at all. One of the difficulties for groups such as the Unemployed Workers' Union or Not My Debt in dealing with robo-debt issues is that the alleged debts may be raised for a variety of reasons, often mixed within one case. These may include 
Lack of detail within tax office records, which leads to the inaccuracies of income averaging. Lags between when a person works and when they are paid. One-off lump sum payments and the complexity of how they are counted as income. Incorrect reporting by employers. Ambiguity about wage components, such as meal and laundry allowances, which should not be counted as income. And many more. Kate shared one case typical in its complexity. We had a woman who rang up who had received some money from an organisation to pay for medical bills. And at the time that that happened, she said she went into Centrelink and said, I'm receiving this money, but I don't actually handle it. It's just being paid from one organisation to these medical professionals. And she was told by Centrelink, oh, don't worry about that. You don't need to declare that. Now, she's since acquired a debt and now they're saying you did need to declare that that's being included in your overall income. That's really different from somebody saying, well, I worked for three days a week and this is how much I earned and Bob's your uncle, it's all really nice and smooth and easy to understand. We also asked Kate about whether people with an alleged debt should contact their local federal MPs for help. People need to exercise their rights and put pen to paper or send an email or go in and see their local MP and say, this has happened to me, this is how and where it's wrong and this is the effect it's having on my life and we want you to lobby on our behalf. Regardless of who the MP is representing, they still have an obligation to inform their government about their constituents' worries. So if people have worries, they need to tell the MP and ask the MP to lobby on their behalf. Kate was keen to point out that the Unemployed Workers' Union's main focus is dealing with recipients' problems regarding job network providers, work for the dole and Centrelink breaches and penalties. She recommends notmydebt.com.au as a great resource focused specifically on robo-debts. Kate's union, however, has a comprehensive page full of handy links press releases and media at unemployedworkersunion.com. They can also be contacted at 03 8394 5266 between 10am and 2pm weekdays. Between all of the organisations that are now dealing with welfare-related issues, we certainly pull our weight as well and you can find a lot of information through looking at our site or calling us up. We'll refer you to the best areas to seek information from. Many thanks to Kate Zetius for her time and her insights. This is a public service announcement with guitar. In June of this year, the Senate Committee into Robo-Debts handed down its final report. We'd like to leave you with its damning final conclusions. It was made clear to the committee during the course of this inquiry that the evidence consistently demonstrated a key flaw in the OCI program, a flaw which filtered throughout the OCI debt recovery process, a fundamental lack of procedural fairness. This lack of procedural fairness is evident in every stage of the OCI program. It can be seen in the drafting of the policy, where there was a lack of consultation with key stakeholders who could give feedback on the potential impact to vulnerable Australians. It is evident in the testing phase for the program website, which did not include an adequate cross-section of users, including those with vulnerabilities or communication barriers. 
It is in the failure to carry out a risk assessment before the process started, in sending letters without checking addresses and taking a lack of response as a refusal to engage, in the averaging of income data, which invents a fortnightly income-earned sum for the purposes of then charging people with a debt, knowing full well it is going to be wrong, in the millions of calls that went unanswered as people tried to contact the department to discuss their debt matter at the request of the department itself, in the lack of information released to individuals which they required in order to challenge a debt, in the imposition of an automatic 10% debt recovery fee. It can be seen in the institution of a debt recovery program reaching back six years despite online departmental advice that welfare recipients need only retain records for six months. A lack of procedural fairness is evident in all these stages. The system was so flawed that it was set up to fail. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.